Let me pray, and then I'll, I'll go ahead and begin. Uh, Father, thank you for uh, just all the blessings of life. We're grateful for um, our church. We're grateful for um, just all the, the wonderful relationships you've blessed us with. Uh, we ask now that, Lord, you would speak into our lives uh, as we go to your word, uh, that you would teach us your ways. We just acknowledge that we're very needy, and we need you. We need your, your wisdom, uh, your leadership, and your guidance in our lives. Uh, we do thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, I'm going to try and take two messages, two 30-minute messages, and try to compress them into one. And I want to start by uh, sharing this thought. Uh, this is, I'm going to give you an opinion, but you know, the, the early church identified seven sins that they thought were most deadly to the, the life of a, of a person, the life of a believer, and they ended up calling them the seven deadly sins. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the seven deadly sins, but they are sloth, lust, anger, gluttony, pride, greed, and envy. And in my studies and in my interactions with people, uh, I work predominantly with men in a men's ministry. Uh, I have come to the conclusion, and again, this is my opinion. This is not necessarily biblical. But in my opinion, there are three of those seven deadly sins that are the most deadly. And that is pride and greed and envy. And I'm going to share with you why I think that's the case, and then I'm going to share with you, I call it the, the antidote for dealing with these three sins that can so poison our lives. Now, the main reason I think that these are so deadly is because they are hard to detect in your own personal life. Now, C.S. Lewis talked about pride and mere Christianity. And he says the problem with pride is we so easily see pride and arrogance in the lives of others, we just can't see it in ourselves. He says there is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. He says, I've heard people admit that they are bad-tempered or they cannot keep their head about girls or drink or even that they are cowards. But I don't think I've ever heard anyone accuse himself of this vice. At the same time, I have very seldom met anyone, at least who was not a Christian, who showed the slightest mercy to it in others. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. And the vice I'm talking of is pride, or really arrogance. This is also true with greed. Tim Keller says, you know, he's pastor of a, probably the largest church in New York City. He says, I've been there all these years. And he says, I have people come and share with me their problems. They pour their hearts out to me. And he says, you know, most of my congregation are Wall Street types, attorneys, professionals. He said, in all my years here, I've never had one come to me and say, Dr. Keller, I'm struggling with the love of money. He even says that he did an early morning series where he taught on the seven deadly sins. And he says, the morning that he taught on greed, hardly anybody showed up. 
He said they thought, this is something I don't have a problem with. And he says the same is true of envy. It's so true, and I'm going to show you uh, in a minute how this rears its ugly head in our lives. But he says this is true of envy as well. And envy means to want somebody else's life, to see something in someone else's life and be jealous of it. So that's the first reason. I think these are so deadly and insidious. But then there's a second reason. These three sins often are sins below sins. In other words, uh, they lead to other sins that are more visible. For instance, you take someone who does something dishonest in order to net a, a large sum of money. And it's illegal. It's dishonest. And that is the sin that you see. But what is the motive below it? It may be greed. Sometimes it's pride. Sometimes it's envy. And we don't even recognize that. Uh, Charlie Munger, who is kind of Warren Buffett's sidekick, um, he's getting close to 90. He's amazingly how sharp he is. But I heard him back in uh, 2008, 2009 on CNBC, and they were talking about all the problems on Wall Street. And so many people felt like all the problems, all the corruption that you were seeing that led to the housing bubble was a result of greed. Munger said, no, I think one of the main problems is envy. He says, you have these Wall Street bankers, these, these uh, uh, investment bankers, and they're making a large sum of money. They might be making two or three million dollars, until they, and they're fine with that until they find out the guy down the hall or the woman down the hall is making five million. And he says it leads them to certain actions and designing products that are not in the best interest of the public. But I think the final reason, I think these three sins are so deadly, so poisonous, is really because what it does to our, our hearts, the way it impacts the human heart. They, they really spoil our ability to enjoy life today. I mean, take greed. Psychology Today wrote, there was an article in Psychology Today several years ago that says that the most unhappy people in our culture are not those who have the most money, but those who think about it the most, who long for it, and who feel like, I never have enough. They become the most unhappy people in a culture. It's kind of like, I know this is fiction, but it's kind of like Ebenezer Scrooge. He was the richest man in that town, and yet he was the most miserable and miserly person because of his excess greed. Then think about envy. Envy can truly suck the joy out of your life like a giant vacuum because you look out in the community and you see people who you think have better lives than you do, and you hate it, you resent it. And then pride. You know, Lewis, the, the, the chapter on pride in mere Christianity is called The Great Sin. And he describes pride as the anti-God state of mind. And he says this is the problem. Pride, pride makes us always to be consumed by what other people think about us. Pride allows, basically allows other people's opinions of us be the gauge in which we measure our lives. 
And so many people, because of pride, have to fake it through life. It creates a real insecurity. And so hopefully you can see how these three sins truly are so deadly in our lives. And you know what's so interesting about them? They really kind of interconnect. There's an interconnection between these three. I mean, think about, uh, think about the, the, a person whose heart is captured by greed. In their minds, they don't have enough money. They always want more. And the reason is, I mean, this isn't rocket science, but the reason is we see money can bring certain benefits into our lives that we are convinced that we need for our well-being. It may be possessions. It may be uh, travel. It may be prestige. That's where pride comes in to, to greed. It may be security. It may be because of envy. There's this ever-increasing desire for more. And then you get to pride, and pride is all about, basically, comparison. Listen to what Lewis says. He says, now what you want to get clear is that pride is essentially competitive. It's competitive by its very nature, while the other vices are competitive only, so to speak, by accident. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. We say that people are, are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They are proud of being richer or clever or better-looking than others. What he's saying is, it's not that I want to be the richest person in the world. I just want to be richer than all of you. He says, and er if everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there'd be nothing to be proud about. It's the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. It's this, this feeling and desire of being superior. A great example of this in the scripture is when you read the, 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 the parable in Luke 18 about the Pharisee and the tax gatherer. You remember that? You see, the heart of arrogance is comparison. Remember what, what the, 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 the Pharisee says? He says, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like other people, like swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even that tax collector over there. You see, what he was thinking was that I am morally and spiritually superior to others. And then you have envy. What it literally means is to want someone else's life. But what it really says is you're not satisfied with who you are and what you have, and that's why you're always looking at others. And this is what's so important to know about envy. Joseph Epstein, who wrote a book on this subject, says, Learn what you envy, and you will learn who you are. And there's two sides to the coin of envy. There's a sadness when you see other people around you who are doing better than you are. Have you ever found that? You, it could be a good friend of yours. And they do something, and they do it so well, and you tell them, and you congratulate them, but deep down... You're sad about it. You don't like it. Or there are times who people that you might care deeply about and things don't go well. And you tell them how sad you are for them. But deep down, you're happy. If you experience that in your life, it's because of envy. So greed, pride, and envy can poison your life. 
And when you're poisoned, assuming you live through it, the way you deal with poison is with an antidote. An antidote is a medicine taken to, to counteract a particular poison. And I believe that the antidote for dealing with pride and greed and envy is contentment. Is to be content in this life. For instance, again, Lewis says in Mere Christianity, pride is a spiritual cancer. It eats up the possibility of being content. And so logically thinking through this, if you find contentment in your life, it will eat up the cancer of pride. Think about it. If you are content with who you are, there's no need to impress and prove you're superior. R.C. Sproul says this about envy. He says, One sure indicator that reveals a person who is truly content with his life is when this person sees his friends and peers doing well and prospering, and he rejoices with them. He's happy for them. On the other hand, when he sees them struggle and go through difficult times, he feels their pain and has great compassion for them. He hurts for them. In other words, contentment eradicates envy. And then finally, contentment means you are content not only with who you are, but also with what you have. As I said earlier, greed believes you never have enough, always craves more, always desires more. Contentment says, I'm content with what I have. Hebrews 13.5 says, let your way of life be free from the love of money, being content with what you have. Now the question is, what is contentment? What is contentment? Well, it comes um, from a Greek word, autarkia, which means to be full, to be satiated, to be satisfied. It's a peace and tranquility in your life. Tim Keller says it's a deep calm and equilibrium. John Stott says it's a peace that you experience in all circumstances of life. And if you really think about it, isn't that what everybody really wants? A peace, a calm, a tranquility in their lives? You see, what, ha what, what we're seeing in our culture is that greed, pride, and envy lead to misery. Now, there's a number of scripture. I'm going to read to you. Um, I just will share with you from Hebrews where it talks about let your way of life be free from the love of money, being content with what you have. In 1 Timothy 6, Paul says, But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And then the, 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 the scripture that I think is, it will be the, the, the basis of what I share with you this morning is in Philippians 4. You're probably familiar with it. Paul says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want. I can do everything through Christ 
who strengthens me. Now, before we proceed, I want us to make one other point, and then I'm going to talk about what Paul and Paul says. I've learned the secret of being content. And we're going to look at what had he learned? Because he doesn't come out and tell us. What had he learned about contentment? But before we go, go there, I want to uh, make this, this, I want to point this out. You know, in the New Testament, you never, in fact, you really don't see it in the Bible. There's one verse in Proverbs, depending on the translation where you see it. But in the, in the New Testament, you never see the word happiness. Have you ever noted that? You never see the word happiness. I'm not even sure there's a Greek word for it. I, I don't know the Greek language, but uh, I'm not sure there's even a word for it. But I mention that because isn't that what everybody in this culture is pursuing? Is happiness? And the problem that you see is that so many people have a hard time even defining what it is. You see, I think for most it's a feeling. And when you feel good, you're happy. When you feel bad, you're not happy. When Forbes magazine celebrated 75th year, their 75th year as a publication, the front, of, the front cover was, why we feel so bad when we have it so good. We're a culture that's into feelings. But the problem is, people aren't finding the happiness they're pursuing. So I Pulitzer Prize winning author John Cheever said, the main emotion of the adult American who's had all the advantages of wealth, education, and culture is disappointment and discontentment. And the question is, if that's true, why? Well, I'm going to share something really, real quick, and then at the very end, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you two reasons. But this is fascinating. This was in the September 7, 2003 edition of New York Times Magazine. There was an article entitled, The Feudal Pursuit of Happiness. It's about our mistaken belief of what will produce happiness. And the article is based on research by Harvard psychology professor Daniel Gilbert, and he had three other researchers, psychologist Tim Wilson of the University of Virginia, economist Joel George Lowenstein of Carnegie Mellon, and the psychologist and Nobel laureate in economics, Daniel Kahneman of Princeton. And they conducted an academic study to explore what produces happiness in people's lives. In the study, they examined the ways we make decisions that we believe will lead to genuine happiness. And then they examined how people actually felt once they got or experienced what they wanted. Ultimately, they were seeking to find out, do our decisions about life give us the emotional happiness that we expect? And this is what they found. In their findings, they began to wonder if everything we have ever thought about life, choices, and about happiness has been at least somewhat naive and at worst, greatly mistaken. In other words... They said, we overestimate the actual intensity and duration of our emotional experiences. The researchers give an example of how we might believe an expensive automobile might, might make us feel wonderful. However, the research is quite clear that such a purchase always turns out to be less exciting than you anticipate. And its excitement lasts for a much shorter period than you imagine it will. Gilbert says, it's not that you can't get the things that will make you happy. It just does not give you the thrill that you anticipated. Furthermore, they point out that most people 
do not know what will lead to their ultimate well-being because our desires bear little relation to the things that truly make us happy. That is fascinating. And I think it's right on target. And that's why people are searching for happiness and find it so elusive. And yet I think what God is saying, His will for our lives, the ultimate good for our lives is contentment. As I'm going to point out, contentment is not what most, so many people, and as I've shared this with others, think that they don't really like that word contentment because it makes them feel like you're just kind of settling for certain things. Kind of like that commercial, you know, we're settlers, you know, the one, the, 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 and that's what a lot of people, that's the way they see contentment. But again, it's, it's a deep calm, it's a peace, it's an equilibrium in your life. And Paul says, I've learned the secret of being content. And so the question that we want to look at the next 15 minutes or so is, what did he really learn? Well, you know, I think when it gets right down to it, as you read those verses in Philippians, the first thing that's, that's quite obvious is that Paul learned that contentment cannot be found in your possessions or even in your circumstances. You know, he's basically, he says back in 1 Corinthians, I mean, 1 Timothy 6, he says, you know, if you have food and covering, in other words, if you have your basic needs met in life, you can find contentment. He says, you can find it whether you have plenty or you're in want. And you've got to remember, Paul is in prison. He's in chains. I can't think of any worse place to be. And he says, I'm content right here in prison. But I think what he ultimately had learned, you know, if you think about it, Paul had been a Pharisee. He was an expert in the Old Testament law. He knew it. He knew Jeremiah 29, 11, where it says, I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not calamity, to give you a future and a hope. He also knew Isaiah 25, 1. It says, O Lord, you are my God, I will exalt you, I'll give thanks to your name, for you have worked wonders, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. You see, Paul lived his life with a sense of mission, a sense of calling. He understood and believed in God's good and sovereign hand in his life and in his circumstances. And in Philippians, in chapter 1, listen to what he says about his imprisonment. He says, now I want, to, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole praetorium guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. He's saying, he can, he's in prison, he says, the whole praetorian guard is hearing the gospel. And believers, so many believers today are preaching the gospel without fear because of my imprisonment. And you don't, you know, it strikes me, you don't see Paul complaining about being in prison. You know, you don't see him saying, you know, God, if you could only set me free, I can go out and preach the message in the, the, the streets of, of Athens 
I can go to Rome. But you don't see any of that. He's in prison. He's in chains. Paul was content to be in prison at that moment because he recognized the good hand of God had him there for a reason. And he rested in that. <clears throat> I had an uh, interesting thing happen to me many years ago. I was in New York, and I got into a taxi cab. And um, I'm in the back seat facing forward. The, the drivers here were going this way. And, you know, the, 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 the front seat backrest was, was right in front of me. And there was a big bumper sticker. Big bright bumper. It was either yellow or orange. I mean, you couldn't miss it. It was strategically placed by the taxi driver. And he was probably, uh, you know, in his 60s. He was a little old guy. He had thick glasses and an accent. Really nice guy. Didn't say much. But he's got this bumper sticker. And the bumper sticker says, Jews for Jesus. Now, I don't know if you know what Jews for Jesus is. It's a national organization of Jewish people who have come to recognize that Jesus is their Messiah. They call themselves completed Jews. And often you'll see buses. That they're, they're, they're traveling around the country and say Jews for Jesus on it. So I was familiar with it. But it was placed in such a way that I knew he wanted me to ask him about it. So I did. And it was like flipping a switch. This little quiet man begins to tell me his story. And then we're, you know, we're driving down Fifth Avenue, and all of a sudden I realize this guy's trying to evangelize me. <laughs> and I let him. I sat there and let him. Until right till we got to the end, I said, you know, I got to my destination, and I, I'll never forget this. I was pulling my wallet out, getting my money to pay him. And he said something I've never forgotten. He says, you know, God has blessed me. He's called me to drive a taxi cab in New York City. And every day, I get to serve people by driving them to their destination." And every day, I have opportunities to share the good news of the gospel. I am a blessed man. You see, he didn't see driving a taxi cab as a drab job. He saw it as a divine calling. He was serving others as he made a living. But most significantly, he saw his job as a platform to point people to Jesus. And you know what? Most significant, this man was incredibly content with his life. And this is what's so cool. His, his life touched me. He doesn't know that, but it touched me. And you know what? I've shared this story with thousands of people. And he has no idea how he has encouraged so many. He'll find out one day. But the question is, do we live life this way? As we look where we are, where we've been placed, and see it as a calling. And that God wants to use each one of us right where we are. It's like the old saying, he wants us to bloom where we have been planted. Are we doing that? 
A third thing that Paul had learned has to do with wealth. As you, you, the, the, all those verses I read seem to have to do with wealth and contentment. But this is one of my favorite verses. In the New, this is also in Philippians. Chapter 3, verse 8. It says, More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, from whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I might gain Christ. You know, Paul had been a wealthy Pharisee and he had lost it all when he became a Christian. And he says, but all that I've lost I consider to be rubbish when you compare it to the incredible value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, having this relationship with Him. And I love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6.10. He says, you know, he says, um, I experience a lot of sorrow, but I'm always rejoicing. He says, I'm poor, yet I make many people rich. He says, I have nothing, yet I possess all things. You know, people will tell you today that there's just really no way to be content unless you have a certain amount of wealth. And you know what Paul would tell you? He would tell you, you're right. You just have to have the right kind of wealth. I love that. He says, I'm poor, but I make many people rich. I have nothing, yet... I possess all things. Paul is saying, I am truly wealthy in the things in this life that ultimately matter. Philip Yancey believes that we all have this deep thirst in our souls that only Christ can satisfy. And you know, that's very, the Bible speaks often of this thirst. You see it in the Psalms. As the deer pants for the water breath, so my soul thirsts for God. And Yancey says, this has really helped him when it comes to looking at other people's lives and being judgmental. He says, now when I go out, say I'm, I'm, uh, he lives in Colorado, but if I'm you know, out in a, in a big city and I see um, uh, maybe a, a, a drunk out on the street, a drug addict, a prostitute. He says, instead of looking them, looking down on them, he says, I see a person who is thirsting for God. And I think this also is true of the person who is seeking wealth, fame, and power above all else. I think this is, explains why people who achieve their dreams and get everything they want end up empty. They're trying to quench the deep thirst in their souls with all the things of this world. And it just doesn't work. And Paul, he got it. He clearly understood that. It can't work. Because we have a thirst in our souls that only God himself can satisfy. He understood that it was Jesus that offers that living water. John 6, 63, it says, It's the spirit that gives life. The flesh profiteth nothing. And in that same chapter in John 6, 35, Jesus talks about, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. 
Remember what we said, contentment means to be full, to be satiated, to be satisfied. But it's, it's referring to our souls and not our bodies. Now this final point is really interesting, and, and this gets back to the pursuit of happiness. As we think about what Paul had learned one of my favorite authors is a guy I don't know that you've ever heard of. His name is Peter Kreeft. Peter Kreeft is 79 years old. He teaches, still teaches philosophy at Boston College. He's written 48 books. And I'm sure he's still working on others. But one of the books that I've read that he wrote was a critique of Blaise Pascal's famous book, Pensée, which in, in French that means that's a French word that means thoughts. And, you know, Pascal, I don't know how familiar you are with him, he was a mathematician, he was a philosopher, and many believe was one of the most brilliant people to ever live. Einstein felt that way. And he had a very radical conversion to Christianity, to real encounter, I think, with the Holy Spirit late one night. And the only thing we really have is this one book, Pensée. And it's a defense of the Christian faith. And one of his main arguments rests on one simple, undeniable fact that human beings are unhappy. That's what he believed. And he said, we don't want to admit it, but human beings are unhappy. And he says, they are desperately searching for happiness but can't find it. And he says, happiness is perhaps the most obvious and pervasive feature of human experience Unhappiness is, and he says, and yet because of our pride, we won't admit it. And listen to what he says. There's a reason for this. And there's a reason, there's an, there, we have the ability to deal with this. He says the reason is because of our mortality. He says death is the most obvious fact of life. He says it slaps us in the face when we realize our own helplessness in overcoming it. He says deep down, and he's talking about humanity. He isn't necessarily talking about Christians. But he says deep down, we are haunted by the fact that when we die, we will experience the loss of everything in this life. Deep down, everyone knows that. And Pascal says this is the reason human beings, and he wrote this 350 years ago. He says, this is the reason human beings love pleasure so much. He says, it diverts the mind. He says, it keeps us from thinking about our mortal condition and losing our very being. So, again, what did Paul learn about death and dying? Remembering again, contentment is a deep calm. It's a peace. It's an equilibrium. And I contend you can't be content if you are unsettled about dying. You can't. And I think Paul knew that. He says this in Philippians 1.21. He says, for me to live is to live my life for Christ, but to die is gain. He says, but if I'm to live on the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. He says, but I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. 
He had this yearning to go and be with the Lord. He had this yearning and desire, as he called it, to be at home. To be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. And that's why in the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, verse 15, it's a very significant verse, and I don't hear many people teach on it. But it says that one of the reasons that Christ came into the world was to deliver us from the fear of death, which we are otherwise subject to as slaves all of our lives. What a great thing. One of the reasons God sent Christ, He sent Him obviously for, to, to, uh, to, uh, for the forgiveness of our sins, for all kind of reasons, but He says, he came, one of the things He did, He came to set us free from the fear of death. And if you think about it, death is such a solitary experience unless you have somebody to walk through it with you. And what are we told? I will walk with you through the valley of the shadow of death. And I don't know what your thoughts are on your own, thinking about your own mortality, what, what I've just read to you. But I'm just, let's just take anybody as a for instance. It doesn't have to be you. But let's, just, let's take a person and ask the question, how different would their life be right now, in the now? How different would their life be if they were completely delivered from the fear of death? More significantly, what if they had Paul's attitude? That I look forward to it. This is gain. How would that impact my life right now as I live today? It would change everything. It's, it's one of the real keys to contentment and really finding that abundant life. You know, I think this is the final component of a life of contentment, but let me, let me just read, when we go thinking back, back to Paul, I want to read this one verse to you. I don't know why, I, just, I love it. I love this, this scripture, and I, I read it often. And it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8 through 10. And I'll kind of wrap this up with, with this scripture. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the very sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us, and it's He on whom we have set our hope. Paul had set his hope not on just any God. He set his hope on the God who raises the dead. And because of that, it completely transformed his view of death and dying, his mortality. You see, Jesus is the key to contentment. That relationship with him. He satisfies the thirst of the soul. He delivers us from the fear of death, which we would be subject to as slaves all of our lives. And so as we wrap this up, I would just say, 
you know, where are we in our relationship with him? Because he, is, he should be the foundation of life. And that's what Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, he who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice in their life will be compared to a wise person who builds his house on a rock. And the winds come and the floods come and beat against that house and yet it stands firm because it was founded on the rock. And of course it says, he who hears these words and doesn't put them into practice may be compared to a fool. When the winds come and the rains come and the storms come and beat against that house, it falls because it has no foundation. And the thing about that scripture that's so important, Jesus is telling each one of us, the storms in life are coming. They're going to come. But you have the opportunity in advance to build your house, to build your life on a strong foundation. And that strong foundation is this relationship with Christ. Now, I'm, it looks like I'm out of time, so we were going to take questions, but it's 10 till. Let, I, I, let me just close in prayer, and I'll hang around up here if anybody wants to chat afterwards, all right? Father, thank you for, again, this time together. I'm so grateful for each person here. Uh, just pray your blessing on each one of them. Pray your blessing on each marriage, uh, each family, uh, uh, all the children represented in, the, in these families. Uh, I pray, Father, that we would recognize that you need to be the bedrock of our lives as we walk through this life, that you and this relationship is the key to finding true contentment. We do thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.